Oh, man. Money and giving and church. We have a hard time talking about that. I do, anyway. But I think I'm not alone in that. I'm kind of on both sides of the coin. You know, I remember a number of years ago, I was speaking to somebody from another congregation who, who, who was gifted at making a good deal of money and, and using that wealth to fund ministries and to do amazing things for people's lives and, and various ministries and so on and helping the poor, all kinds of things. And as I was visiting with this person, uh, they said, you know, sometimes it's hard. Said because, uh, you know, if, if I was gifted as a youth leader or as a Sunday school teacher or a music person, you know, you, you kind of get some encouragement because people know that, hey, you're doing this and you appreciate this and so on and, and whatnot. And, and she said, but the, the truth is that when, when it's sort of a background thing, when it's making money and giving money, nobody's supposed to know. And, um, and that's fine. It's not that I want accolades, but boy, sometimes it's hard to keep keep doing without the encouragement that ministry generally comes. And so it's kind of, sometimes it's hard for us on, on that side, you know, for people who, who God has called and gifted with generosity and the ability to make money and, and, and to keep those folks encouraged and to, and to you know, give, give praise to God for that. And on the other hand, of course, is the, there's what we're always uh, worried about, and that is that, man, you know, the church, they're always talking about money, they're always asking for money, they're always you know, wanting money and so on and this sort of, this sort of thing. And so uh, we get this reputation that the church is just out to, to take and not to give. And so it becomes a very difficult topic. You know, the truth is, I think it, it has something to do with the idolatry that we have of money because it's become a very, very sacred thing. We can't talk about it positively. We can't talk about it in terms of giving. It just becomes a hard topic. You know, it's very interesting with the Apostle Paul. Here he is writing to the Christians in Philippi, kind of in Greece there. And, and uh, as near as we can tell, this is one of the churches that he was closest to. This is one, these are the group of people that they knew his heart and he knew their heart and and towards the end of this letter, he begins to talk to them. Well, actually, it starts in chapter 1, but he brings up, finally, in a more full sense, this whole issue of, of giving of money. And you can tell that on the one hand, he's, he's writing that this is very important. On the other hand, you, you'll see that there's some fear there. There's some anxiety there. He's a bit worried. He knows he's got to kind of tiptoe a little bit. He's concerned that he's going to be misunderstood. See what I mean? Let's read it together. And just keep your, keep your ears uh, open for how he's, on the one hand, he's straightforward. On the other hand, man, he's a bit worried that they'll misunderstand him. So let, let's take a look. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you, you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you're always concerned, is what it really is the idea, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, uh, for I've learned to be content. Whatever the circumstances, I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. But I have learned the secret of being content. In every and any situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet, it was good of you to share in my troubles. 
Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, when I left you, uh, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment, and I have more than enough. I'm amply supplied. Now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send you greetings. All God's people here send you their greetings. Especially those who belong to the household of Caesar. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. So did you pick it up? The reserve and the recognition of how easily this topic of generous and faithful giving can be misunderstood. He, he understands this. He knows this because he's probably been accused before. And yet he knows it also has to be addressed. Because clearly, ministry takes money. It did in Paul's day, and it does today. No matter how you do this faith journey and this work of the kingdom, no matter how we do it, it takes financial resources. It just does. And the truth is, I personally, Alan Jones, honestly, I don't talk to you enough about it. But hey, if you're a guest with us today, by the way, I've got this in my notes with this, just go to the person that maybe you came with and say, is he always talking about money like most preachers? Just ask him and they'll tell you. No, we don't have a clean, never talks about it. I don't talk about it enough. And the, and the problem with that is, is that we end up in a bit of a tight spot as a church. But what's, what's, what's more important is that you miss an important piece of teaching and encouragement in your spiritual and Christian character development, which is wrapped up with sacrificial giving. You see, it's, it's, we end up in a tough spot. That's why we're losing $17,000 a month for the last quarter, which we kind of planned for, you know, coming out of COVID and we had some reserves. And we, but we also kind of thought that we'd catch up a little bit, that, you know, uh, uh, we'd grow back and people would come back and the giving would come up and all this sort of thing. And, and it's, it's not happening as, as we'd hoped. It costs a lot of money. To do ministry. The biggest cost, to be honest with you, the biggest cost is staff, right? I mean, as I said, we've got, you know, we've got uh, giving as one lever we can pull, and then there's staff, and there's a building, and then there's program, and most of the costs have to do with staff. And for the churches in North America, um, these are what I'm going to give you here are U.S. stats, because it's really hard to get Canadian stuff. The, the, the demand for money for staff has, has grown. Because people have become increasingly busy and, and volunteer hours have plummeted. And so it's easier for people to give money than it is to give time. And you know that in your lone life, right? I mean, you know how busy you are. Back in the olden days, after I got finished uh, slaying the dinosaurs in the, the 1980s, when it kind of started out here, um, the ratio was this. For every 100 people who attended the church, there would be one 
full-time staff person. And then, and then what you do is you get 100 people, and then if you wanted the church to grow, you'd add one more staff person for the 100 that you had. So the ratio was 1 to 100. And that's kind of how it was in the, in the 80s. But by 2015, as people got increasingly busy, the ratio went to 67 to 1. In other words, for every 67 people who participated in the church, then they hired one full-time person because ministry had to go forward and volunteer hours were increasingly short, and so, and so it went, and so that was by 2015. That slide continued. By, by 2019, the ratio was 51 people to every full-time person. Half as much, right? Twice as many staff to do the same job as it did in 1980 because people were busy and it's easier to get money than it is to get volunteers in general, 2019, right before the, the, the um, sorry, the 2015 was 67 to 1, 2019, just before the pandemic, it was 51 to 1. And now, since the pandemic, the ratio is 30 to 1. 30 to 1. Some places, it was between 25 and 30, we don't really know because the year isn't over yet. So you can see that, man, you know, that is, that is a significant shift. Massive number of staff compared to the number of people who participate in uh, the church. It costs money. And the ratio of 30 to 1, it's not sustainable, right? It just isn't. Because people have not returned after the pandemic for a variety of reasons, so on, and giving hasn't come back. All of these different things. And so we find ourselves in that same spot. You know, last year, our budget was a little over a million dollars. And so this year, the, the first run at the budget, which will go to the board here on, uh, not tomorrow, but the next Monday, uh, we cut almost a couple of hundred thousand dollars. And so uh, the budget proposal is $820,000. We've made some cuts in, in almost every department and staffing and different things. And, um, and so what, here's what that comes to. Because that's a big number. And, you know, for many of us, what does that even mean? Here's what it means. That means for every adult who is a part of the Grand Prairie Church of Christ, it's $305 a month. Okay, so for every person, every adult, so for Sheen and I, two adults, our household, $610 per month. That's, that's what it is. Now, now here's the thing. It, you know what? To tell you the truth, that's kind of dual because the, the after-tax mean... So you know, what the, you know what I mean is? It's not an average. I mean is there's just as many people that earn more than and just as many people that earn less than, okay? The mean after-tax salary, the most recent data I could find for Grand Prairie, is a little over $3,500 a month. So if everybody tithed, we'd end up with like $120,000 deficit. Not deficit, surplus, I mean. We'd sort of refill the hole, okay? But that's a huge number, isn't it? And if you're a person that wasn't, that wasn't used to tithing, you didn't start tithing when you, were, when you know, first became a Christian and it wasn't modeled in your home and stuff, it's like, okay, well, why are we wasting money having these lights on? Let's say we cover cash here. Because it just it seems like an incomprehensible number, doesn't it? It's kind of shocking. But the truth is, if I'm a follower of Christ... The amount that I give should affect my life. If what I'm giving for ministry to move forward isn't, isn't affecting my life, if it's not restricting me in some way, I'm probably not giving enough. 
I'm probably not quite at the place where, where I need to be. And it's so hard to do that. You know, Martin Luther, way back in the 1500s, he said that, you know, every single person has to go through three conversions. The first conversion is the, the conversion of the mind. Well, do I believe there's a God? And if there is a God, is he this Jesus guy? Does that make sense? Is that who the God it is? And do I believe in the resurrection? I mean, what a wacko thing to believe. Can I possibly believe that? I look around and, you know, and so there's this, this conversion of the mind that takes place. Well, yeah, you know what? I guess I can kind of see my way through it. I've still got questions, so I can kind of see it. And then he says, and then there's the conversion of the heart. Where God says, listen, I, I want your love. I want your heart. I want your commitment. Why? Because I have given you mine. And if a relationship is going to be good and healthy, you have to have my heart and you, I have to have your heart. And so there's the conversion of the heart where, where the priority comes. And then Luther says, and the final and most difficult one and the last one that people give is the conversion of the purse. In other words, of our wealth and of our money. I remember years ago, a, a preacher said, uh, through the doors, he said to me, listen, the wallet is always the last thing on the altar and the first thing off the altar. It's hard. And Paul knows it's hard for these Philippians, and he knows it's kind of tricky because, as we're going to see, they've given sacrificially, and now he's writing about giving, and they're like, dude, haven't we done enough? He's afraid that that's what they're thinking. And so, and so he hedges his bets and all this sort of stuff because he knows it is hard. So why would we do that? Why would we give sacrificially? Why would we do something that, that the average person would think, are you nuts? I mean, it's fine to you know, give 20 bucks or whatever and it's good to support the poor and so on. But what's this, what's this big bucks? What's this 300 bucks a month? You've got to be kidding me. Why would we do that? Well, as we went through this passage, this Paul outlines for us several different motivating factors for why as Christians that we would give. And the first one that comes up is that we give because we care about people. We care about people. That's how Paul kind of begins his thing. I'm glad that you have renewed your concern for me. Not that you didn't you know, want to give, but you didn't have the opportunity until now. The, the basic motivation as to why we would possibly give to ministry is because we love people. We care about people. And ministry ultimately needs to be about people. And if it's not about people, if it's not you know, somehow you know, feeding the hungry, uh, visiting the sick, uh, teaching the gospel, if, if it's not ultimately about money, isn't being put towards ministry, then that shouldn't even happen. Ultimately, the first goal, or the first motivation is, hey, because we love people. God has placed in our hearts, when we came to Christ, he's placed in our hearts a love for people. And I give money so that people's needs can be met. Because it kind of leads into the next thing. If you care about people, you care about the mission. The mission that God has given us. Look at verse 15 and 16 there. You can see there that, that, that these people, they had a concern for Paul, but not only that, but they had concern for other people. Look at it. Let's see if I can start finding it. Verse 15. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of our acquaintance with the gospel, with the good news of Jesus, when I set out from Macedonia, when I left and I was on this missionary journey, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. When then I was in Thessalonica, you sent me more than once 
a gift when I was in need. They knew that this mission of taking the good news of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit to around the world, that that needed to happen. They cared about this mission. And so they gave this gospel, this truth that there is a God of love who created the universe, who created this planet, who created men and women so that he could have somebody to pour his love into, so that he can have a relationship of, of love and care. And so he created us. And as we know, we kind of messed it up. We decided that, you know what, we don't really like being uh, inferior. We don't really like being a created person. We actually would kind of like to be God. We actually would kind of like to be the ones that say what's right and wrong. We actually would kind we the one that say that this is good and this is evil and this is this sort of thing and so we messed it up but the good news is that God is not a God of vengeance and of hatred who just squishes all right there he said okay then I'm going to have to save this I'm going to have to redeem this I'm going to have to buy this back which ultimately came about in Jesus Christ the Savior who died on the cross for all of our sins who recognize the wreckage that human beings have caused in their own lives and in the lives of other people and with all of creation. And then he said, I'm going to create a church. I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. And as I've moved through Israel through the time to come to Christ, now I'm going to move through these people by his Spirit to bring about the kingdom of God, to begin to make things right within themselves, between other people, between nations, between us and creation. And the church is going to be about this business of thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we're going to give you the power by the Holy Spirit to do that. And then one day, one day, Jesus the Savior is going to return a new creation will take place and everything will be set to rights. Everything will be righteous in right relationship once again. And all of the world, says God, needs to know and to live in this good news that no matter how messed up things are, God loves and God wants and God desires and God wants to be involved and make it right. And we give our finances so that in every way and in every place that good news is lived out, carried out, and proclaimed. And then, the final motivation that we have here, once you've been captured by the love of God, I mean really captured, once God's grace really becomes something that I understand, something that I have experienced, something that I have been confronted with, and the living God comes into my life, once that takes place, when the Holy Spirit comes in like a flood and like a fire and all of these different things, I cannot help but want to worship. And the last motivation that Paul kind of puts in here is, so why on earth would I give? I'm motivated to give because I want to worship. And giving money is worship. That's what verses 17 and 18 are all about, right? He's saying all these things. Say, listen, no, 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 no. Not that I desire your gifts. In other words, I'm not here, I'm not here asking you for more money. Don't, don't. What I desire is that you may be credited to your account, for I've received full payment and much more than enough. I'm amply supplied, but here's what I've received from the paraphrase you have. They are a fragrant sacrifice, offering an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. That's Old Testament sacrifice language. 
That's that whole thing of, you know, when the sacrifices went up and it says God's nostrils are pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice and this sort of thing. That's how they worship God. They went to the temple. They made sacrifices, uh, praise offerings, all of these different things. And what Paul is saying that, listen, when you give money, it is an act of worship. And God breathes that in deeply because it reflects your heart and your thanksgiving. You know, it could be a, maybe a helpful thing. It's, it's easy for us maybe to, for, for giving to become a bit mechanical. You know, most of us do it electronically now, to tell you the truth, right? You know, e-transfer. And it's easy for it to kind of become this mechanical thing. And when it becomes a mechanical thing, it loses something. It loses the joy of worship. So maybe, uh, you know, whenever you give, however you give, whether it's when the thing passes by or electronically or whatever it is, or even if it's, even if you do it on your own, the automatic withdrawal and that sort of thing, maybe when you get the bank statements or whatever, but at some point, couple that giving with prayer so that it reminds us that this is an act of worship. I'm doing this because I love the living God and this is a pleasing aroma to him. This is something that he enjoys and finds joy in. I give ultimately because I want to worship the king of the universe who died and lives for me. And Paul says, when I, I, I tell you this stuff because I want it to be credited to your account. That's kind of a weird thing. What do you mean credited to, to our account? What do, what, what, it actually says, so that you may enjoy the fruit is really what it, what it says. So that you might enjoy the fruit of this act of worship. What's he saying? He's saying, first of all, that you would recognize that, that, that God delights in what you've done. And that you'll have the satisfaction in your heart that God delights in what you've done. I mean, you know, we've got Christmas coming up, right? And so what's our great hope at Christmas? Is that whatever we love somebody we're going to give this gift to, what we, what we want is that that person to be delighted in this gift and to recognize it as the, as the act of love that it is, Right? I mean, that, that's our hope, that when, when they open that gift and it comes across, whatever, that, that you see the delight on their face. Why? Because they have recognized, hey, this is something from my heart to them, and they delight in it. And what he's saying in this is, listen, what I, what I hope, that first of all, that you get the fruit of this, that you gain the sense that God delights in your giving, that God smiles, that God brings in deep into the act of worship that you've just offered up to him with all of your, your, your fullness, and we see the delight of the heart. That's the first fruit. He said, I'm, I'm just telling you, because I want it to be credit to you. I want you to, to see that you've got God's delight in your bank account, so to speak. And not only that, but there's, there's a bit of an immediate thing. He said, I want, you, I want you to have the good that comes from giving. I mean, just think about the good that comes from giving for your life. First of all, it changes our heart. It's an act that changes my heart and my, my focus from myself to somebody else. My heart changes. I'm no longer you know, just trying to gather, gathering for myself. No, my heart is different. A little bit earlier, we've seen that Paul says, hey, listen, count one another. Another person is more important than yourselves. One of the ways that we do that is that we give, and so it changes my heart. Number two, it breaks the rule of money over my life. I so easily become a slave to money. 
They so easily fall into, well, how much is that cost? And how are we going to do this? And now we're in this tight, and you're getting into my 60s now. How are we going to do what's going to It's so easy for money to be my first worry, my first concern, and my first motivation. Oh, how much money can I make in that? This investment here? Okay, well, how can I do that? So easy for money to begin to rule my life. And, and what generous giving does is it breaks that. Because money wants to control you. It wants to, that's mammon. That's what, that's what it been talking about. Money is not just, you know, the cash. It's mammon. It's this, this control that the finances can have over your life. And when we give, we say, no, that is not going to be the primary motivation of my life. That is not going to be how I view every relationship and every transaction and every day when I get up. It's not going to be about money. It's going to be about God. And so when we give generously, we break. We break that which I at least so easily fall into. Not only that, but it's the fruit of greater happiness. You know, it's really quite interesting. There's a guy by the name of Martin Seligman. Seligman, this time pronounce it. Anyone ever heard of him? He's kind of the grandfather of, of kind of this modern movement to um, positive psychology. He talks about how psychology began, you know, whenever it was 60, 80 years ago. It was all to do with uh, pathology. Uh, it was to do with, man, I'm, I'm really messed up here and I need some help and a psychologist would come and, and, and help us work through those things and that's a great thing and that's a good thing and where it goes but, but as, as psychology has matured and come along they, they say no we want more than that this is secular stuff by the way so we, we want to help people we want psychology to help people have a good life right it's positive psychology he's the you can just check him out he's gonna but I'm this is just out of a you know a TED talk but it's interesting because he said, you know, when we, when we think about that, with psychology, when we think about happiness, happiness, which we realize is different than joy, we've talked all about that, but it's kind of mingled in together. He said, you know, um, we, can, we can identify as psychologists three sort of contributors or layers of, which bring to happiness for people. And they're all good. They're all good. But some are better than others. The first kind of layer is what we call pleasure. And this is happiness we get from pleasurable things. You know, you get yourself a new car, you have yourself a nice meal, whatever the deal is, you know, a nice shirt or whatever it is. It's somehow, you know, we just, you know, we, we find pleasure in, in, in stuff that we can in, in enjoy. Just, just pleasure, you know, it, it's a good thing. He said that the second layer of, of happiness, the second layer of happiness, uh, he calls um, uh, good the good life. So the first one is kind of the pleasurable life. You know, you enjoy it. You go on vacation. Great stuff. Good stuff. God likes it. God wants it. God bless you. All this kind of stuff. He said, the second one is the good life. And this is, this is kind of a bit deeper. This mostly, this has a lot to do with relationships. And having relationship and people that you know care. And people that uh, you can care about. And he said, you know, it's, it's, it's that. The good life is that flow you get into. He said, for example, um, one of the examples he gives is, is music. You know, if, you, if you're a musician and you go and you're, you're listening to a concert or you're playing music and you just sort of get swept up into that and you didn't even notice that two hours went by. You know, or maybe you're, maybe you're an athlete and just that feeling of when you're in the moment and when you're in the game, and it just seems like that, 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 that game, that run, that whatever, just, just went boom, it went by. You're in the flow, and maybe it's you're having coffee with a good friend. 
And man, you realize, oh, we've been here for a couple, three hours. You know, you better get out of here. They want this table. That, that's the good life, right? It's, it's a little bit deep. It's not just fleeting. It lasts a little bit longer. You can remember those relationships, all those things. He says, but, but just psychologically, the third and deepest and most long-lasting pleasure is when you have a purpose that is beyond yourself and you're engaged in it. When you're, when you're into something and you know, this, you know this is not about me, but this is, this is about the earth, or this is about rescuing kids, or this is whatever the case may be. When you're involved in contributing to a purpose that is bigger than yourself, he said, that is, that's the pleasure that really casual. That's what really is the deepest. Well, you know, it's kind of modern psychology, positive psychology, but the Apostle Paul knew this way before because he's saying, listen, we are involved in something much bigger than ourselves. We are involved in the redemption of all of creation. From making sure the trees and the water and the mountains and all of those things are good and treated well, to making sure that we're doing whatever we can to bring and to be peacemakers and to bring reconciliation through conflict. We talked about that last week. And to this, uh, all the way through down to this reconciliation of dealing with anxiety and so on that we talked about last week, all of these things and giving that to people and reconciling all people to God. That's our purpose. That's our calling that's our greatness and, and and if we give we give because we want to be a part of that and Paul says and I want you to have the fruit of that I want you to have the sense that when you give you are making this kind of difference so so that, that's why we would do it we do it because we care about people and we want to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and take the good news of Jesus to everyone this. We do it because that gets carried out in our mission. And we do it because ultimately we are worshippers of the living God. Well, then Paul says, okay, so, you know, it takes money and here's why you should do it. And so what are some of the results that we can express? We've only talked about some of the fruit in this, in this positive psychology happiness thing. But there's some other results of giving. Number one is that we learn contentment. Did you notice he, twice in verses 11 and 12, he says it twice, I've learned to be content. I've learned to be content. I've learned to be content. Why does he have to learn it? Because we are not naturally content. Now, there's a positive side to this. Discontent can drive us to change the things that we need to change, doesn't it? It can cause us to pursue things that need to be pursued. Uh, discontent with, with who I am and what I've done and all of those things, the contribution I'm making, whatever, it can drive me to make the changes and it can be a very, very good thing. We can kind of call that a, a holy discontent. You know, something's wrong and we're going to fix it. As Christians, we're going to fix it in the power of the Holy Spirit. But discontentment can take over. It can become negative, right? As it did in the Garden of Eden. Uh, we're not content. And so we begin to push in to things that are unhealthy. And we begin to think that, man, you know, if I could just have just a dollar more, then I'd be content. Because then I could do whatever I want to do. And our culture fosters discontentment, doesn't it? I mean, that's the whole deal of the consumer society is, yeah, you might have a nice car, but you can have a better car. Yeah, you're nice to have a nice house, but you can have a better house. Yeah, you've got nice shoes, but you can have some better shoes. 
And so it builds in this, this discontent, and we need to be aware of that because it is this pull towards the idolatry of selfish wealth accumulation and even of things that we don't even use. We use them once every two years, but we've got it in back. So Paul says, listen, we've got to fight against this, this wrongful discontentment which stirs or keep the good it's good it's good as a motivating stuff but man it can become bad and here's the thing I have to learn it and you know when you learn I hate this you learn when it's hard you grow when you're pushed you learn when things are are, are, are just kind of beyond ourselves and difficult and maybe we've messed up or maybe the challenge is bigger and I don't know how to meet it and somehow I've got to grow into it. But we learn in difficult times. As one guy said, I can't remember who it was now, I forget, darn it, I meant to look that up. Success is a poor teacher. And so that's what Paul is saying. He said, listen, I, I've learned. Man, I've, I've had plenty. I've been well fed. I've had it good. But I've had it bad. I've had it where my belly is empty. And I've had it when I'm in chains in prison. And it's in that difficulty, it's in that hardship, it's in that time that is more difficult than myself. That is when I have learned contentment. Now this pursuit of contentment, we've always wanted it. The philosophers, the Greek philosophers in Paul's day, in particular the Stoics, a lot of their writing, a lot of their drive was about contentment. And as a matter of fact, in this passage where the language that Paul uses, it's tying into that, that Stoic philosophy, that Greek philosophy. And he's sort of saying, okay, I'm going to use this language of the philosophers of the day, but I'm going to spin it on its head. And so today, uh, you know, with various religions and uh, various philosophies, it's this pursuit of contentment. And he's saying, this is what I've learned because we all want it. We all have to learn it. So how do I do it? Well, there's a few different things. As I say, he's, he's doing a contrast. And the first contrast is between Detachment and engagement, okay? Detachment and engagement. Because what the, what the Stoic philosopher said is, listen, if you want to be content, here's what you've got to do if you want to be content. You've got to disengage. You've got to not worry about the world. You've got to, not, you've got to disengage from the circumstances of life, whether it's your circumstances or whether you're walking past the legless person in the street. If you want to have contentment, you've got to disengage from an emotional involvement in that situation in life. If you can just cut off your relationships and your worries and your concerns, then you can be content because it's not going to hurt you anymore. That was kind of the, the, the philosophical, stoic thing. But, but Paul says, no, 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 no. The contentment that we're talking about is not detachment, but instead it's engagement. It has to do with this higher purpose. It has to do with the sense that you can make a difference in people's lives. It has to do that we are on a greater mission, that we look beyond ourselves. And instead of disconnecting my heart from that person who is poor, who is a beggar on the street, who is suffering, instead of disconnecting myself from that, instead I'm going to, as a follower of Jesus, I'm going to enter into that person's life and I'm going to engage that person. And I'm going to meet that person's needs. Why? Because that person needs to experience in a very real bodily form the love of God. And in that sense, when you will engage in life fully in the power of the Holy Spirit, 
and you can know that you are making a difference. It might, it might feel like just a tiny bit of difference, but, but you know, it might even fail, but you know you're on this mission. It's engagement, contentment. By engagement in the miseries of life, not disengagement from the times that are hard. And the other thing that, that Paul is, is, is contrasting himself with is with the Stoic philosophy and some of the other philosophies. It's not only, not only detachment and engagement, but it's self-sufficiency and God-sufficiency. You see, what the Greek Stoics were saying is that, listen, you want to be content, you know what content is? Content is when you are self-sufficient. It's all part of that cutting off disengagement, right? When you've got everything within yourself that you need, when you're self-sufficient, then you're going to be content. When you've reached Independence Day, you know, Financial Independence Day, and you don't need the job, and you can tell your boss to do whatever, whatever those things, when you've reached that point, then you will have contentment because you're self-sufficient. Paul says, no, 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 no. <laughs> We're not going to do it that way. We're going to have Christ's sufficiency. And we're not going to withdraw myself and cut myself off so much that I've just got, you know, I'm only going to live the life that, you know, I have sufficient resources to do. And for some of you, it's like this. And for some of us, the life ends up being like this because we're not very sufficient. But I'm content. I'm not worried. I'm not scared. I've just got this little life. Paul says, no. The contentment we're talking about is Christ's sufficiency. It's understanding that we are going into situations and lives and peoples and circumstances that are beyond ourselves because God is calling us to live beyond ourselves into the uncomfortable, into what I know is beyond me, to flow through me with his grace and his kindness and his gentleness and his goodness and his selflessness and share that with other people and in the strength of God, we have joy and contentment. And he underscores that for us in verse 13, doesn't he? Verse 13, probably the most misquoted passage in certainly Philippians and maybe the New Testament. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. We, we kind of misunderstand that because sometimes we'll say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's actually what the Greek text says. But it misses understanding. This is not Paul giving you a motivational speech that you actually can be an NHL player. <laughs> what he's saying is if you're called to be an NHL player, you can do that in God's strength. And what he's saying is whatever the circumstances that, that God calls you into, as hard as it may be, as challenging as it may be, as rewarding as it may be, whatever the case may be, whatever it is that we are called into, God will give us the strength to carry out that mission. That's what he's saying. I can do all of this. I can learn to be content. I can be content in prison, change her prison guard, hoping to God literally that somebody, some church, somewhere, some friend remembers me and sends me enough money that I can buy food because in those prisons you have to feed yourself. And I can do that. I can be content in that because Christ has strengthened me. We find God's strength 
when we live beyond ourselves in answer to his calling. And so one of the results of sacrificial giving to the degree that we're called, to the degree that you are called, we find God's strength. And then the last sort of result that he talks about here, we've got the needs, we've got the motivation, and, and, and the last sort of result is we experience God's provision. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. You know, it's interesting that, that Paul writes this letter and sort of ends his time with these words of reassurance. Do you know, it took me a long time to realize. And it was a great realization because it helps deal with shame and guilt and all this kind of stuff. When we read in the Bible stuff and we think, that's not true of my life. I don't love like that. I don't sacrifice like that. I don't give like that. And then pretty soon, you know, we get done whipping ourselves and we feel like junk. It took me a long time to realize that. You know why it's in the Bible? Because these guys struggled with it too. <laughs> That's a, oh, this is normal. So, and so he writes these things to, to these Philippians. Why? Because they were anxious. Remember last week, anxiety. Because they were anxious about how they were going to eat the next day. Now this is kind of a crazy thing. Because on the one hand, they had this, this anxiety, worry about paying their bills. On the other hand, they were amazingly generous. I mean, that's part of the thing that Paul's saying here is, hey, thank you. Thank you for this gift, this money you've given me. And it must have been a substantial amount, they figure, as Tom Wright says, because the dude, you know, traveled over 1,000 kilometers to give it to him. You don't travel 1,000 kilometers to give somebody 10 bucks. And they were incredibly generous. Look at this. Let's see if we can find it here. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And now, brothers and sisters, these he's writing to the Corinthians, right? So these are the guys, you know, they also were kind of Greek, but they're a little ways away, a little bit different culture. But anyway, and now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace. In other words, it's a gift from God to be able to give. About the grace that, given, that God has given to the Macedonian church. That's the other part of Greece. These are the Philippians, okay? Listen to what he says. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of serving in the service of the Lord's people. They were sending an offering to Jerusalem to the Jewish Christians who, had been, who were starving and were cut off. Here they were, incredibly generous, gave out of their poverty, the only church to support Paul. I mean, they've got this generous heart and they do it and then they think, stink. How am I going to feed the kids tomorrow? How, how is this going to work out? I mean, I was generous and I don't know, maybe some preacher told me give 10 bucks and you'll get 100 back. I don't know. Some of that malarkey that goes on sometimes. And they're worried because they've given and now what are we going to do? They're generous but they're concerned. And so, in the first part, in chapter 1, in verses 4, 1 through 6, and the whole anxiety, and now in this part, uh, Paul's saying, listen, I know that the practice of this generosity can be very, very scurry. 
But he wants to put the reputation of God on the line. He says, but my God will supply your needs out of the riches of his glory. Now, you need to camp out here for a little minute. Because this passage can be abused very easily. So there's a couple of things that we need that we're not sure about, honestly, in this passage. Number one, when you read it like that, it sounds like this, you know, absolute promise. And we'll get that. In the end, it kind of is. But understand this. There is a, there's a good amount of scholarship all the way back from Chrysostom, all the way through down into Luther, who say, you know what? This is a prayer. You've given generously. You're anxious about it. And now you don't know how you're going to eat tomorrow. I just, I pray that God supplies all that you need from God's riches. Okay? And so it, it, it gets really, really technical in Greek language and textual criticism. I mean, it gets really complicated, <laughs> which you don't care about, although I lay awake nights dreaming. But, but the bottom line, it, it can be understood that it's, this is a prayer that we give generously and then we pray to God that he gives us what we need to get through the next day. So it could be a prayer. Number two, number two. This does not mean that it's going to be easy. God never says life is going to be easy. God never says, hey, you know, you just be a faithful person and your life is going to go swimmingly all the days of your life. What does Paul say? I've learned to be content in prison. I've learned to be content when I feel like I'm starving. I've learned to be content when I've been shipwrecked. I've learned to be content when I've been beaten for the gospel. Don't misunderstand this text. That God's supplying of my need is going to be, that means I'm going to have an easy, prosperous, healthy, wonderful, marvelous, rainbow-filled life. It says that God will supply what I need to get me through all of eternity. Which is the third thing. We immediately think about the material wealth that can come from us, and, and it includes that. But it also has to do not just about thinking on material needs, but being met with the more weighty eternal concerns. And so Paul died for his faith. How was that meeting his needs? Because his eyes were on eternity, not now. So when it all gets done and you think about these things and the scholars go back and forth and debate and argue and so on, it probably does mean that Paul is saying, hey, listen, um, I'm going to pray and you pray and God will meet your needs. It, it probably does mean that in this context. But it's not some simplistic, oh, yeah, you know, no problem. You're going bankrupt, make sure you give your tithe and then you won't go bankrupt. You have to give your tithe and you still go bankrupt. But be content in that. Because it's bigger than ourselves. But the truth is, we'll never know the amazing provision of God unless we put ourselves in the space where we recognize that we are counting on it. We fool ourselves and we think that, that we're doing it ourselves. No, it's all the provision of God anyhow. It's just that he's gracious and provides so much, so much of the time, even when we're in rebellion, even when we don't even know that, believe that there's a God. He still provides the fruit and the trees and the harvest and all these different things. 
So, ministry takes money. I'm an expensive potlicker to have around. And ministry is dependent upon Christians giving sacrificially. In our case, we're now we're 100 people less now, post-COVID, than we were prior, prior to COVID. That's this $305 a month per adult. But as the Philippians were called to give out of their hearts and even their financial pressure, God called us to do the same thing. But he knows it's not easy for me. He knows that I can come up with all kinds of excuses. Well, you know, I give my time and my life and so on, so maybe I, you know, I can cut short on the money side of things. He knows that those rebellious thoughts occur to me. He knows that. He knows what's the struggle and the difficulty and the fear that's in, in your hearts. And so he gives us these motivations and these results. And so now it's up to us. God says he'll give me the strength and that he can supply the provision to achieve in my life and through my life what, what he wants. And it might not be what I want, but it's what he wants. So there's a few questions that I think we have to wrestle with. And you can answer yes or no. It's, it's your life, it's your heart, it's your journey with the Lord. And, but, but to me, there's a few questions that come up. Number one, do I care about people? Do I care enough about people that I'm willing to step down a bit myself? Whether it's caring about people by sharing the good news of Jesus or giving them food or, uh, you know, Thankfully, now we're so happy we've got the kitchen going again there for, for uh, Jared and his ministry feeding the homeless and so on, where you give money so that we can have a kitchen. <laughs> it's, you know, do, I, do I care about people? Number two. Then does that translate into being passionate about the mission of bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth? I care about people. Am I passionate about the mission? Am I, and in particular, am I, am I passionate about the mission of the Grand Prix Church of Christ? And I'm not passionate about the mission of the Grand Prix Church of Christ. I need to find some church, some expression of the kingdom that I am passionate about. Because I'm not going to give to something I'm not passionate about. I just, I just won't. And neither will you. You will for a while. But then it just builds bitterness in your heart and it ends up not being an offering anyhow. It's not worship anyhow. You know, it's duty and law and all that junk that messes us up. So, do I care about people? Am I passionate about the mission? Do I trust God's provision? Understanding that his provision might not be what I want. Hey, man, it might be more than I expect. I don't know, but it might be less, too. Do I trust God, his provision? And am I willing to learn to be content in all circumstances. Even if it means my life is going to be like Paul's, living in a prison, hoping money for food comes from some Christian 1,300 kilometers away. 
And when it finally comes, say, oh, thank God you finally renewed your concern for me. You didn't know I was hurting, and I was starving. And so thank God that you gave. These are hard questions for me, I suspect for us. But as Paul finishes this letter to the Christians that he loves the most, that he's the closest to, that have been most involved in his ministry, he kind of ends there. In this letter of joy, with purpose, mission, faith, joy. Almighty God, it's very hard to talk about money and it's hard for me as a preacher because, you know, I stand up here and I pile this money that these people give is so I eat and so on, eat well. And it's hard to talk about it because the church has a reputation of just um, being lecherous. And sometimes we are. And sometimes we're uncurring. And sometimes people are brutalized in how demands for money come uh, from the church. And we don't want to be that, and we don't want to do that, and we repent of any time that we have done that. But Lord, the truth is, we are put on earth for this mission of reconciling all of creation to each other and to you, and even to ourselves with these struggles within we talked about last week. And it just has always required material input. From Cain and Abel, in some ways the first brawler religiously was about giving grain or blood. And we struggle, Lord. So I just pray, Father, as we, as we pray through and think through these questions, just help us to be honest with ourselves and with you. And then just to take whatever next step, whatever next step is good. Give us the courage to do that. We pray through Christ, our Savior. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.